Hello and welcome to Headroom, Curious Conversations for Leaders in Education. I'm your host, Richard Reid, and today I'm joined by Shane Martin. Shane is a psychologist dedicated to teaching the very best self-help psychology to empower people to enhance the quality of their lives. His Mood Watchers self-help psychology course has been delivered at community venues throughout the length and breadth of Ireland. He has visited hundreds of schools working with pupils, parents and staff. Shane has delivered well-being seminars to health professionals, state bodies and to many leading organisations on topics like happiness, resilience and well-being. His book, Your Precious Life, How to Live It Well, published by Orpen Press, is well worth a read and theatres up and down the country have been sold out with his show, Wake Up, You're Here. Shane, it's great to have you on the podcast today. I'm happy to be here, Richard. Shane, a great deal of your current work as a psychologist is focused on the education sector. However, your first experiences of working in this sector many years ago was as a teacher. Can you share with us what inspired you to make the move out of teaching and into the world of psychology? Yeah, I think I understand that decision better now in hindsight, because I think as we grow older, Richard, uh, we accumulate a bit of wisdom and we can look back and make different sense of things uh, with that wisdom. And I think I left teaching because, uh, not because I was unhappy, I was a happy teacher, definitely, but because I didn't feel as challenged as I used to be in it. And what I mean by that is the job I had was a, a lovely, lovely job, and I loved doing it. It was within the whole area of special ed. Uh, like I had my own class uh, with you know a, a, about 20 kids, with all different types of disabilities. And when I was appointed to that job, I actually wasn't qualified to do it. So you hit the road running when something like that happens in your life. Um, and I had to learn how to do it. We didn't have such a thing as a classroom assistant in those days. So I brought parents in. I didn't have resources. Uh, you know, like there was nothing there that was suitable for the kids I had because it was a brand new, a class that was set up within the school so I had to do research and buy uh, you know special books from Australia and New Zealand because they were ahead of us by many many decades I think uh, you know high interest level low reading level uh, ability that kind of thing and you know through time I, I, I got better at it and then I did a, a diploma in special education which really gave me the skill set to even um, maximize my potential even more in that job and I loved it, but I think I reached a stage where it was time to change because sometimes just because you love something doesn't mean you should be doing it. And what I mean by that is, <laughs> like, I, I could do that job in my sleep at the end of my, you know, after nine years. And, like, I could teach the sounds of the alphabet in my sleep, if you know what I'm saying. Now, it's a very important job that I had, but... Um, I think I needed a, a, a break from it and, and maybe I needed a new challenge at the time. And if you were a good friend of mine around that time, I probably would have been saying to you that, uh, that I had itchy feet syndrome, that, that mm. I, I just want to try something new. So I, I didn't leave teaching because I was unhappy, but I probably needed to be stretched more. So if I'd been offered by the principal to come out of special ed for a number of years and maybe teach history, which was in my degree, I might've hit the road running again and I might've had to be stretched again to become competent as a, as a history teacher. 
and it might have bought me more years in education. So I think what I'm alluding to there really is the flow left my job. And uh, flow is when you're stretched, uh, when you're absorbed by the task at hand and where you lose sense of yourself really, where your days are not long enough and where you lose, I suppose, consciousness of yourself, others in the world during a lot of the day because you're so busy. I think that 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 flow concept is a brilliant one, um, and I like the idea when you talk about you know being stretched. And I suppose a lot of us sometimes feel stretched in a negative sense, but you know you're talking about it there, obviously in a very positive sense. You know that inspiration to learn more, um, and maybe get out and, and and study more. You know, attend more courses to try and make you you know better at what you do. So yeah. that that idea of stretch, you know, that, that that really 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 appeals to me. Um, Shane, your your website is, is very aptly named Mood Watchers. Um, in recent years, and especially since the start of this pandemic, educators have become so much more aware of the concept of well-being. Some might say we have made good progress in supporting pupil well-being, but we still have some way to go to manage staff well-being. Uh, how might leaders in education balance the well-being needs of staff as well as pupils? I think uh, I'm a bit of a revolutionary on this, um, so maybe controversial, but I think education leaders have to really look at the education system. Yeah. And I think we have to grasp nettle. Mm-hmm. And like, I often feel that the education system sells kids short. And I, I meet a lot of teachers who burn out within the profession very quickly because it's, it's so stressful. Yes. But, you know, I often wonder, uh, you know, what's education for? And like I've met kids who at 18 and 19 years of age and you couldn't get better results than they got. And there might even be a prefect, a head prefect or a student of the year in their final year. But sometimes they crumble to pieces during their first crisis and first term in university. Mm -hmm. And I've met, I've met students who find themselves steered into the wrong career. And as a consequence, you know, struggle with their job for decades afterwards. Mm -hmm. And I often wonder, you know, when you think about the reality that we only live this life once, and that's a reality no matter what religious belief you have or whether you have one at all. Yeah. I'm a firm believer that everyone's entitled to as much health and happiness as, as, as is humanly possible within their lifespan. And I think education doesn't really prioritise health and happiness of teachers or students. Yeah. And I think each school has to cultivate those things so you can't be doing something just for teachers or something just for students or something just for parents. Yeah. It, there has to be something for the school community. And, and I think we have to be brave and we have to ask ourselves sometimes, what's it all about? Because you and I know from our involvement in, in, in education that the best schools seem to be the ones, it was certainly perceived to be the, the best schools, the ones who get the best results. Uh, so, like, you know, parents, that conversation always is had by parents, you know, and I, I often wonder, is the school that gets the best results the best school? And I think, you know, we all know, particularly if you're in management, that, you know, if your school is considered an academic school, you should have no problem getting students into it. Yes. Uh, but I still think you have to ask bigger questions about uh, what's the purpose of that school that they are coming into. And... I think the well-being of teachers is very, very important because, you know, it's results driven and there's an awful lot of pressure on teachers to put up a high score. And 
you know, sometimes the ability to engage and to make students imagine and, and to think outside the box is more important than what students learn off by heart and can, you know, put into a, an exam after six years or whatever during a set time period. Um, I think sometimes the, the role of the teacher needs to be looked at in a more creative, innovative way too. But there, there are things we don't seem to have the confidence or the bravery to tackle. You know, yeah, yeah. like we, we keep the system, we, we tweak it slightly, Richard, but we don't yeah. grasp the nettle and ask the bigger questions, you know? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree entirely. I mean, I think that idea, yes, we're, we're probably exceptionally good at tweaking things. Um, mm. and, and I suppose maybe the question at the moment is, you know, this pandemic, and we're near, we're, we're basically we're a year into this um, mm. with, with huge change. We've been forced into change. And I suppose um, the worry is that, that all being well, yes, we get, out, we get out of the pandemic at the other end and things come back to some sort of normality. But the fact that we've been forced into some of these significant changes at the moment, when you, will we be able to hold on to these changes and, and embrace those changes when, when we're not forced into them, if you know what I mean? So I wonder whether or not when we move out at the other side of the pandemic, you know, will we still be in a position, like you say, how readily we will be you know, to, to grasp that nettle? Are we going to let it go straight away and get back to normal? I don't know, yeah. maybe with, with, with the schools that you've been talking to, you know, up and down the country, you know, do you think there's any sense of, of hope that, you know, even at management level and above that we will continue with those changes? I hope that happens, but I think it's, it's also policy at, at the yeah. highest level in that, you know, it's very hard to be daring within education. Yes. It's, it's very hard to take risks because you could end up with mud on your face and, yeah it is all about how the school is perceived within the community. And like, for instance, I'll give you an example. There could be a school who decides to focus uh, on kids with learning difficulties and they might, with a big generous heart, decide to start an autistic unit within the school and mm -hmm. to embrace those kind of students within the community. But I've often heard it said that if they focus on that too well and put yeah. too much energy in it, that school might be perceived as the school for the kids who are weak as opposed yes. to the kids that are academically strong and it could take a hit in terms of mm -hmm. numbers. Now, mm -hmm. those kind of conversations sadden me, to be honest with you. And yeah. I think we really have to look at what education is about. Uh, and, you know, I think we need a more holistic approach. And we have to, like, when you think about it, like the obsession in school often is finding out the weakness in kids. Mm -hmm. Like I was a year head, a form teacher for yeah. third, fourth and fifth year. We met every week, uh, all the year heads for an hour. And we only talked about bad behavior. Like I was, right. um, I, I was the man who you know, would investigate the cigarette butts behind uh, the back <laughs> walls of the old building. Okay. And uh, I was a, a, a fantastic detective in my day. <laughs> And I could catch anyone. I could uh, lift the butts and I could tell if it was if they were warm and I knew the students were very close by or if, if there was on them, I knew it was definitely a female. Uh, and, you know, all the meetings were about bad behaviour. And if yeah. someone hadn't, I suppose, had been suspended or if we were going to suspend or expel people. But there were other students there. And I, when I look back at it, Richard, and we missed it. And I remember there was one student uh, who came into first year with a lot of physical difficult uh, disabilities in a wheelchair. And I remember observing that student in the first week. And there was on one other student within that group 
who decided to push that wheelchair for six years mm-hmm. on her own initiative, who queued up for the salad roll at lunch break and cut it up into parts for that, that fellow student. Right. And she wasn't put up on the stage. Uh, it was only the academic awards that we mm-hmm. talked about and the sporting achievements. But like kindness is a fantastic trait. And we yeah. know from yeah. studies into happiness that the kinder people tend to be happier as well. And so mm-hmm. like we miss, I think we miss things like that because we're all obsessed with results. We're a results-driven um, system, I think, yeah. all schools. And, and, and principals are afraid to, to, to change it too much in case the yeah. school might yeah. lose its good name. It's not terrible yeah. when you think about it. It is, it is. It is. I think it's, it's, it is, there's a couple of layers there. And I think you're right, you know, as, as school leaders, we're very conscious of, of the demands that are placed on us, you know, from above, higher up the ladder. Um, but at the same time, you know, we, we have a, a responsibility to look after our, the well-being of our staff. And I, I suppose it's, it's balancing those two things uh, against each other. I think at the moment, certainly during the pandemic, we're, we're much more acutely aware of the well-being of, of our staff and ourselves as, as principals as well. Um, and, and I suppose my only hope is that we can continue to be as aware of that and, you know, as proactive in, in trying to, to help that and pursue that and, you know, out the other side of, of the pandemic. Um, Shane, I've, I've had the privilege of hearing your, your keynote address at a, at a principals conference a few years ago and have also listened to a number of your, your more recent webinars. What one thing that's definitely really resonated with me um, is, is the value you place on humour. Can you share with us why you rate humour as such an important part of the well-being of any school community? Well, the research bears it out that humour is therapeutic and like uh, laughter therapy is a standardised therapy worldwide. So like that's maybe justifies what I do from a scientific perspective, but I'm big into humor anyway, and I often see laughter as the breakthrough in self-discovery. So sometimes psychologists can take themselves too seriously. And I think the profession (laughs) itself has done so in that the profession has nearly obsessed itself with the things we never want to get at the expense of truly understanding the things we all crave for. And if I want to pitch myself differently to an audience, I think it's fundamentally important that they know that I'm like them that I'm human, that I'm vulnerable, that what I am asking them to do to improve the quality of their lives, I actually have to do myself. So I tell stories hoping that they might see themselves in the stories and I'm trying to demystify a psychology and I'm trying to destigmatize mental health vulnerability because mental health vulnerability is within all of us. And sometimes I land punches with humor and people tell me that afterwards, that they only get it when they're leaving the room. <laughs> so I, think to, I think he was actually talking to me. And I didn't realise he was talking to me at the time. And that excites me. Uh, yes. And, you know, when I do the, the shows in the theatre, like uh, I'm at my most excited uh, when I, I go on the stage, because I know what I'm doing is, is demystifying psychology and that I'm mixing it with poetry, with humour, with storytelling. And in my own unique way, and, you know, and it gives, it gives me great satisfaction, I may be reaching people's hearts and minds and helping them. And uh, I don't think I'd have the same influence if I gave them an academic lecture. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I, like I lecture in DCU as well in Dublin at times, 
And that's a different style I would use. I'd still throw a bit of humour in because I, I always like the crack. <laughs> but uh, yeah. but a different style. But when I'm trying to address people and trying to help them and reach their hearts and calm their minds, maybe, I think I have to use humour. And it's a great yes. tool. And, and you know yourself as a, as a teacher. It's a fantastic. And, you know, you, everybody you know, has, has been a teacher at some stage, I think, you know, managers as well. Mm-hmm. You, you know that humour works with kids. Yes. You know, and, and you can buy more time in, in a class if you use humour. They might stay with you longer. Uh, yes. But if you're all serious and academic and, you know, I think they can switch off very quickly. Yeah, I think, yes, you're right. It's, it's about getting, you know, a healthy balance between the two. Uh, and I suppose, you know, you, you've been in a lot of different schools. I had the privilege of working for two years for, for the, the board um, as a seconded uh, primary field officer. And you knew when you walked into a school straight away what, what, the, you know, what the atmosphere and the ethos was like. And, and if humour was there um, in abundance, you know, you had, you had a really productive day. You know, you got down to the serious business. And, and people took on what you had to say from, you know, if, if it was curriculum advice or whatever, but if it was coupled with, you know, good humor and people not taking themselves too seriously, uh, you definitely got places. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm in complete agreement with you on the, on the, on the humor factor. Um, Shane, you have a, a well-packed diary of webinars planned for, for schools right across the country, um, as well as general ones, such as the, the, the wake up you're here, which is aimed at the whole family. As you move on through 2021 and beyond, what, what are your hopes and plans for for mood watchers yeah well you know unfortunately COVID-19 disrupted uh, Mm. what I had organised and that I I was going to do a nationwide tour of the show Wake Up You're Here like I brought it to the the Black Box in Belfast Uh, I brought it to the Hawkswell in Sligo and the Interstater in Castellani and it coincided Mm. with a brand new book that a lot of people don't know I have out because you know COVID disrupt, disrupted the launches, but I, I brought out a book called uh, Thin Lines, and mm-hmm. it's it's actually a book of poems because I'm a, I'm a published poet as well, and people don't know that, and and poetry goes much deeper than psychology, I think, and yes. you know I think psychology tries to make sense from the outside, and I think poetry makes sense of world from the inside, and there's a there's a subtle difference there, yeah. but yeah. I had this great idea of um, mixing my psychology with my poetry uh with my humor and my storytelling and bringing that show around the island of ireland and that's been parked now uh, the books are in the warehouse because we can't you know the publisher can't promote the book the way he yeah. uh, you know they would like to but yeah. as soon as covid lifts I'm, I'm really looking forward to taking three months off and concentrating on that uh, yeah. i'm also working on, on a book of the same title uh, wake up you're here uh, and hopefully in the six to seven months, I'll have that finished as well. So I'm going to be busy. I'm enjoying the work I do. And every day is different, Richard. And, yes. you know, I'm stretched definitely. We talked about being stretched mm-hmm. um, in a very, very uh, healthy way in yes. that, you know, if, if, you're, if you're overly skilled for the task at hand, you'll be bored. Yep. If you're underskilled, you'll be stressed. But if the right balance is there, you have job satisfaction. And I I have a lot of job satisfaction, thank God, at the moment. 
Fantastic. Shane, it really has been a pleasure listening to you today. And I want to say a big thank you for the way in which you approach the very serious topic of well-being in schools in such a practical and personable way. Your use of evidence-based strategies combined with that great sense of humour, I believe, make the goal of well-being much more achievable. For our listeners, never has there been a time when your well-being has been so important. And if you want to find out more about Shane's work and how you might connect with him, have a look at his website, Mood watchers.com in the meantime i trust you will be able to join me for the next episode of headroom curious conversations for leaders in education 